those words, I don't know if you are correlating them with the Gospel of Matthew, but when you read them, Christ has just spoken on the Sermon of the Mount, and what he has just taught is what he is saying to stand upon. So on Christ, the solid rock we stand, it's on his word that gives us foundation. And that's where we turn is to his word for our very foundation now. Well, it's uh, summer, and summer is hot, as has been stated already and felt already. And where do we go when it's hot? We float the Frio. Uh, maybe we go to Lake Conroe. We uh, go uh, with our friends, family, to where there's water. Um, and, uh, man, thinking about uh, floating freely along with good company down uh, with the current uh, when the water is a cool 68 degrees, not a bad way to, to spend the summer. I know some of you have even been there uh, recently, beating the summer heat that way. Well, this morning, I want to take you with me to the Jordan River, the Jordan River. You're like, we're getting wet? Uh, in a way, yes. In a way, yes. Uh, we're going to jump the Jordan instead of float the Frio. All right, so we're going to jump the Jordan. We're going to get right in where the scene is in Mark chapter 1. This is where the student ministry has been recently. The high school group and middle school groups have been studying the gospel of Mark this summer. And we found ourselves on the shores of the Jordan River. This is a great place for us to turn, to go to. I'd invite you with your Bibles to open to Mark chapter 1 and wading into a verse-by-verse study of the life of Christ in the gospels has brought fresh springs of grace to my soul. Fresh springs of grace. This is John Owen's way of saying it, but I agree with him wholeheartedly. This is what I've found in turning to the Gospel of Mark, finding fresh springs of grace. Every time we cover a new passage, every time we consider something else that Jesus said or did, we find something that nourishes and refreshes our soul when life is so hot and we're so weary. No matter how long you've been a Christian, when you look upon the Lord, when you behold his beauty and when you gaze upon his glory, something happens. Something happens. And when you do that, you find fresh springs of spiritual life. Fresh springs of spiritual life. This morning, I'm happy to be able to do this with you. My soul has found great joy and refreshment in going to the Gospel of Mark, and I want to take you there with me so that we can, too, uh, behold the beloved and be refreshed in our faith. This is the best place to be, best place to be, no matter if it's middle, winter, summer, anytime. Go straight into the Gospels at the heart of the Bible, God's revelation to us. Now, think with me for a minute as we set the scene and come into the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has left heaven where he's been praised and worshipped rightly and without interruption or disturbance. He's left that place and that exalted place, and he's wrapped himself in flesh, subjected himself to uh, the form of man, and coming as a helpless baby, baby to Joseph and Mary, he's born into our world at the exact right time. He grew up in a sin-cursed world, a a world that is governed by a governor who is Satan. And he grew as a young man in stature and development, his mind, 
his, de- his dependence on his parents, his dependence on his heavenly father and the spirit. He studied in the synagogue as a preteen. He uh, spent a little bit of time there, but most likely spending time at home uh, and around the Sea of Galilee with his carpenter father doing tasks like that. We don't know much about who Christ is and, and what he did when he was younger. There is a stretch until he's about 30 years old that is silent. Luke 3.23 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, so it's kind of the beginning of what we have mostly recorded for us, was about 30 years of age. So he's about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph. So the ministry of John the Baptist is the one who came before him and signaled for Jesus to go public. And that's what you see first in the Gospel of Mark. You come into chapter 1 and you find that there is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. you got Isaiah quoted and then you have John appearing, John the Baptist. And he comes proclaiming a proclamation that has to do with repentance. The people were not ready to receive him as their king. That was the problem. Jesus, to come without announcement, without a forerunner, this is John's whole job. John's whole job is to get the people's ears and hearts turned toward the Lord. Uh, it's, it's recorded that in ancient days when a king was coming into a place that he had not been before, and there were uh, winding roads with high walls and cliffs around them, and where there are hills and there are valleys, and it would be hard for him and all that came with him and his uh, brigade to make it, that he would send a road crew ahead. And the road crew would pave the way into the town so that the king could have his proper entry. Uh, and that's, that's something that we see, even on the screen here, you see the Judean wilderness, and you see the sea out there, the Jordan River in that direction. The people knew what John the Baptist was talking about. The people knew that there was a very rocky wilderness out where he was proclaiming his message of repentance, and he was He was telling the people that they needed to prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight so that when he comes, he would come right into their lives, right into their land, right into their whole world, and they would receive him. That was all that John the Baptist was doing. He was the road crew going ahead of the king, trying to make the way. And he wasn't with spade and shovel, but but he was with a message of repentance that dug not into the dirt, but into the heart. And it was to look And see if you are ready to receive this one who is mightier than John, who would come after him and who would baptize with more than just water. He would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's what John the Baptist was after. This morning, we get to examine the baptism of Jesus. One of the most important events that happens before he goes public. So this is him going from private to public, and this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. What I want to do Now, let's just read for us our passage, Mark 1, 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
What I want to do for us this morning is provide for you four refreshing reflections on the Lord at his baptism. Four refreshing reflections. Yes, it's a tongue twister for me. I have to say it very slowly. Uh, But so that you can be refreshed in your heart and you can prepare the way of the Lord into your life. So I feel much like John the Baptist. I feel like we're at the banks, at the shores of the Jordan and continuing that message. But then now we're going to, instead of speaking out like John the Baptist said, we're going to listen and we're going to see and we're going to watch what Jesus does. So the first reflection I want to give you is that uh, Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee. We see that in chapter 1, verse 9, in the very beginning. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, the, in the those days, what we have just been talking about is the days of John the Baptist, the j- days of proclamation of repentance, the days of uh, prepare the way the king is coming. John's been very clear from the beginning that the Messiah the promised one to Israel, the coming king is not him, but it's someone coming after him. People were starting to come out to him. Almost all of Jerusalem is dumping out of the city and going out into the wilderness to listen to him. They're coming out through those wadis, those dried out riverbeds, and they're coming out to him over hills, through valleys, and to hear his message. And in those days, he was proclaiming. And in those days, this message of repentance was ringing out and was being distributed to the people. And their response was one of baptism, getting into the water and showing, yes, I want to be cleansed. Yes, I'm ready for the king. Now, where did Jesus come from? I think this is kind of interesting. And so kind of throw up a couple of slides here. Galilee is from Nazareth of Galilee. Um, here is a picture of Israel as we know it. And in the bottom section here, you've got Idumea down at the bottom. But Judea uh, being just left of, uh, west of the Dead Sea, east of Mediterranean Sea. And down in Judea, the southern section, southern portion of Israel is where the capital Jerusalem is, where much history is of the Old Testament happens there. And then you have a section that's almost like a belt in between the top, and that's Samaria, Now, Samaria is made up of, surprise, surprise, Samaritans. Uh, And Samaritans uh, lived in here, half-breeds being Jewish, part Jewish and part Assyrian because of their history of being scattered among different pagan nations and then being brought back and not really settling. And so you have Samaria and then you have Galilee, Galilee being the other orangish color up there in that region next to the Sea of Galilee. You can almost see Nazareth up there. It's just west of the Sea of Galilee, um, a little bit. And what do we know of, of Galilee? Well, here's another picture of it. We know quite a bit about Galilee, but we know nothing about Nazareth. We're kind of like thinking, okay, prepare the way, here he comes, and he's coming from Nazareth. And you're like, this is, this is a, a nothing kind of town. It's known for nothing. It's an obscure village, Not very many people live in it at all. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. The Talmud, you'd think that maybe they would say something there in it with their uh, Jewish writings. Josephus, another guy who wrote at the same time as as Jesus, he didn't say anything about Nazareth up until now. 
So it's kind of a forgettable place. It's an overlookable place. But this is his hometown. This is his humble hometown. It's obscure. It's unexceptional in, in name. It's not associated with royalty or nobility, accomplishment. Uh, there's nothing great here for him to come and for everyone to say, from Nazareth. Whoa, you know, it, it gives them kind of like a, huh? You know, that kind of feeling afterwards. They're like, what? No. What, what good can come from there? In fact, in John 1, 46, John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. You got to go find out for yourself. So Jesus, why I pause on this for a moment, Jesus is from Nazareth. Shows his humility, shows his humanity, shows him being a historical figure, actually coming from an actual place. He's not make-believe. He's not a fairy. He's not, you know, something that you kind of just have made up as a fictional character. He's historical. It's on the map now. You can look at this guy and know, hey, he's a, he's a figure of history, not of our imagination. And he's humble. You think about coming from heaven down to a nothing town, a place that didn't even, you know, boast that they made the flag for their state or something, you know. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing to really put them on the map, right? And that's where he comes. It's almost like Jesus tried to look for the lowest place to come, from the highest place to the lowest place. The king of the universe coming from a place where probably no other king came from. And it just causes us to think for a moment and reflect Have you ever had a hard time relating to Jesus? Have you ever thought for a moment, well, Jesus is, well, he's, he's God. He's sinless. I look at all the sin in my life. Uh, how could he relate to, to me? How could I relate to him? But suddenly you look and you see and you, and you find someone who are like, hey, I'm from a little town. I'm from humble means. I'm not from a great family. I wasn't brought into great wealth. I don't have much prestige. I'm not related to anybody who went to an Ivy League school uh, or someone who was a successful businessman or woman. But I'm, I'm not widely known, nor the place I come from. And you go, hey, you can relate to Jesus in that, in his humility. Suddenly you find him to be someone who was numbered with us coming to the lowest place. That's our first reflection. Second reflection I want to bring to you has to do with how he sub submits himself to John the Baptist. Same verse, verse 9, he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Baptized by John in the Jordan. So Mark just records the facts. They just said, and he was baptized. They didn't like really build up to it a whole lot, didn't spend a lot of time developing it. Just kind of said, yeah, kadunk. It's like, oh, you missed it. <laughs> like he went under. Uh, that was it. Um, he came and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Um, again, to kind of orient you, I like pictures, and there's some people who got a really tall ladder for this one. Um, now, probably uh, a plane or a great drone. Um, and uh, and here is a picture uh, looking east. If you're wondering which way it's oriented, or looking east and, and looking way out, and over here the blue that you have is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is part of the, you know, the southern portion. 
of Israel's border. And what you have coming kind of winding, you can almost see it there. It's got green around it because it shows there's water at the bottom. And there's the Jordan River pouring into it. On either side, it's pretty dry. And you see a lot of crops and other things because what are they doing? They're finding their source of water from the Jordan River, pulling water those directions. And so here's uh, one picture zooming in a little bit. Uh, here you have it, not, not extremely wide in its birth. You have uh, it kind of snaking its way from, from north to south, going from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, kind of like the dead end. Um, and uh, so that's where it heads. Now here's, here's beside it, kind of looking at it today. These are pictures of it today. And uh, you can almost kind of picture people gathering around the slopes that are, that are near it and by it and, and listening. And you know how sound reflects off of water and, and almost like amphitheater style. There, a lot of people could gather around here and could hear proclamation and could notice things going on. Another close-up, um, just some, some of it down on the water level. And uh, when... Kathy and I and a group from the Master's Seminary got to go on a study trip years ago. Uh, we were led by Dr. Varner, William Varner, and, and he showed us all around the Israel. And when he was here, uh, there were a couple of people on our team who wanted to get baptized down in the Jordan River. And so uh, this next picture is here. Dr. V, we called him Dr. Varner, uh, baptizing one of the guys uh, on our trip down in the water there. Um, pretty sweet. Um, and so we were in the splash zone there. Um, so just to kind of give you a very realistic look at this is a real place, real people were here, and this is something that we're going to consider for a second. John the Baptist is saying that someone greater than him is coming. So the, when the, someone greater comes, who should do the baptism? Right? You're like, okay, John, Jesus, meet, hi. All right, so now let's... You know, the baptism, you're like thinking, well, if anybody should be baptized by anybody here, Jesus should baptize John, right? But it's the other way around. He, Jesus, was baptized by John in the Jordan, now, filling in some of these details. And if you know where Matthew is, just come over to the left with me. A few chapters, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. Go ahead and keep your hand there in, in Mark, but look at Matthew 3. Verse 13, Matthew three thirteen says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. He kind of builds it up a little bit here, unlike Mark. So John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him. This is why. Listen, verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting, it's appropriate, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Uh, John doesn't argue with that, so, so he consents. Okay. And then Jesus was baptized. So it's, why, why, why was Jesus baptized? You're kind of thinking, well, you know, he's not going to wash off his sin. We know he's sinless, so why did he need to get baptized? He doesn't, he doesn't even need to symbolically associate it with it because he's never even been touched and tainted with sin himself that he's responsible for. But Jesus came to earth not to excuse himself from the obligations of the law, but to fulfill all righteousness. That's why he came, to fulfill all righteousness. 
full and complete obedience to the law to fulfill every bit of it. So it was fitting and it was appropriate for him to be baptized, not because he was a sinner in need of being cleansed, but because he wanted to be righteous in every way. And why I pause on this and want to reflect is to say this to you. He is your perfect righteousness. He's the one who stands in in your place before God, not as someone who cut corners and shortcutted, but as someone who is your perfect righteousness, nothing left out, all demands upheld, nothing held back, nothing fell short. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reminds us of this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. We know that we don't have a righteousness of our own. But we've been credited by faith when we exercise faith in Jesus. Our sin is taking off of us put on Christ, and he pays for it. His righteousness that he lived, a perfect life, became ours. So I just wanted to pause on that for a moment and see, why is Jesus even being baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. Why does that matter? Because you need perfect righteousness to be right with God. And so we can thank Jesus for his perfect obedience and his total submission to his heavenly Father, which here was submitting to John the Baptist and being baptized by him. You know, I've heard at times people give excuses for, you know, why they haven't been baptized. I don't know if you've ever heard some or maybe thought some yourself. You're kind of like, well, I call myself a Christian, but I'm not baptized. I'm not baptized yet. You know, some people say, well, I'm just kind of waiting, you know, to like become more mature or like, you know, work on some things in my life. Kind of thinking like, okay. Uh, Other people saying, well, you know, I'm just not like an outgoing person. I don't like, I don't like attention on me, you know, so I'm really not about the baptism thing. Um, Other people saying, you know, hey, I I don't need to be baptized to go to heaven. I just need to be saved by grace, right? You know, some people, I was too busy or some people, you know, say I can't swim, you know, uh, you know, whatever, (laughs) whatever it is. Um, You know, to all those and more, I say Jesus had the most legit excuse to not be baptized, but yet he did. So I say, keep working on it. Keep reading the Bible about baptism and realizing what the Lord would have for you to do. If you are someone who is following after him, you're someone who goes quickly to the water. So here is our second reflection. Here now is our third. Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 10 with me now. Verse 10. It says, And when he came up out of the water... Immediately, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, out of all the baptisms that you've witnessed and seen, because they're a public thing, right? They happen in public in some measure. Um, There's some that are more interesting than others. You hear some people that share very interesting stories about how God has saved them, rescued them, and that was very interesting. And when I taught a series on baptism, what it is and why to do it in our student ministry, I came across a couple of very interesting baptisms. Uh, one was a pastor who was a wrestler by profession before he became a pastor. 
And so he was a pro wrestler, and uh, they had the baptismal up here, and he goes through his little talk thing. He's got a super tight shirt on, you know, all the muscles out, and, uh, and he's ready to baptize this member of their church. And what does he do? He choke slams them into the water, right? You know, <coughs> boom, you know, right down into the water. And everyone's like, woo! And the guy comes out of the water, yeah! You know, and it's a, you know, that was a, that was a cool church, right? Um, and uh, you can kind of picture Ken doing that, right? Um, rolling up his sleeves, um, joke slam him. Uh, but no, that, that was a very uh, edgy kind of thing. And that's why I think so many people were watching that video. Another one of uh, a, little, a little boy, so precious. This boy was adorable. And you could tell he was so happy to be baptized. This was his baptism. And he's in the water and his dad's got his hands on his shoulders. You could tell the dad's the pastor. He's very long-winded, um, like most pastors, you know. And so he's just talking. You know, he's a proud dad, right? And the son's just kind of like, you know, wiggly and the dad's wiggly. And, you know, and, and you can tell the kid's just kind of like, oh, man. And so he like breaks free from dad's clutches and just, you know, just sticks his, he just goes under and he comes up, yeah! And the dad's like, oh, uh, you know, he got away from me there. Um, so he was just like, come on, dad, get over with it. Um, and then there was the other one, this one, I don't know if it, I don't know if it was a local church uh, or like near uh, Houston or whatever, a mega church that installed a spiral tube slide into their baptismal on stage. They had so many people getting baptized that they had an auctioneer baptizing them at the top as they went through. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Holy Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like boom, 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 going through. That last one was found from Babylon B. Um, so... It's a site for Christian news satire, so that didn't actually happen. Um, but there's a lot of interesting and unique baptisms. But this one is the most unique of them all. Looking at verse 10, you see why. He came up out of the water. Immediately he saw, this is Jesus looking, seeing the heavens opening or tearing apart and, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Verse 11 elaborates even more as to this voice coming from heaven. And so this is the most unique baptism that anyone could ever see or, or witness because of what all happens here. As he comes up out of the water, you see, like a dove, the Holy Spirit descending. He sees the heavens like a garment or like something being torn from top to bottom. Uh, the verb there of, of heaven's opening is passive, implying that God is the one who did it. It's the same verb here in verse 10 that is over in Mark fifteen thirty-eight. When Jesus died on the cross and what happens in the temple, the curtain tearing in two in the Holy of Holies from top to bottom, same concept. And that idea even there of using that same verb in the same way, you're kind of seeing something happen. Something between heaven and earth is being removed. There's some kind of significance about this man, Jesus, in the water right here, just baptized. And all of a sudden, almost as if there's a portal open to heaven, this guy has a connection to God. This guy is someone who is unique because heaven tears open for him. God was doing something here. God was doing something here. Heaven is communicating with earth here. It's because of Jesus. Now you have the Holy Spirit Descending on him like a dove. This is the third member of the Trinity 
third member of the Trinity. We serve a God and know a God in the scriptures who is three in one. The Bible says he is three and the Bible says that he is one. Do the math. It's not two, okay? Um, And uh, so there is complexity to the Trinity, but it is most foundational to who he is, that he can be three persons in one essence, all at the same time, never mixing, trading hands, and never one beginning, the other one's starting or stopping. And you see here a full display of the Trinity. Now, with the Spirit descending on him like a dove, it does not mean that he was not on him before. That did not mean that Jesus was without the Spirit before this. This is just a significant time in the public ministry of Jesus for people to identify him as someone uniquely fit and empowered to do the things that he's going to do. That's why there's extra emphasis on the Spirit descending upon him. He's ready for full-time messianic ministry. And he's going to be fully empowered by the Holy Spirit to do all that he does, to say all that he says. It will be because the Spirit has rested upon him. Isaiah helps us with this. Aren't you thankful for the Old Testament? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So you read about Jesus and you go, wow, how does he have such discernment? How does he have such insight? How does he know what to say here? How does he know exactly what to do there? The Holy Spirit has rested upon him, has enabled him to have counsel, might, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And he's yielded perfectly to the Holy Spirit. There's nothing the Holy Spirit wants to do in the life of Jesus that Jesus is not letting him do. He's totally yielded to the Holy Spirit. Later in Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is Jesus. The Spirit descending upon him like a dove. People ask, why a dove? Well, is it because he's white, pure, innocent, gentle, with wings, hovering like over the waters, like in Genesis 1. Uh, You know, there's a lot of conjecture. But we don't want to make too much of a simile. A simile is like a dove in a dove-like fashion, not a dove, literally. But one connection that we have in the Old Testament is looking at what a dove was used for. Anybody know? Sacrifices. Interesting. Interesting. The most common bird of sacrifice the poorest family could bring a dove and offer it up. So, hey, maybe this is the Spirit descending upon him in a form to empower Jesus to be the sacrifice for sin, the sin of the lowliest. I don't want to get carried away with extra meanings, but just see that he is empowered to do ministry for his Father. And now we get to turn to what his father has said. The final reflection that brings refreshment to our soul is that Jesus pleases his heavenly father. This is my favorite part. Just giving you a little heads up. Verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Wow. 
a voice came from heaven. You know, this is going to happen two more times in the life of Christ. Two more times where a voice from heaven is going to speak. One is at the Mount of Transfiguration. In the Mount of Transfiguration, you see up in northern Galilee, up on a hill, high mountain, Peter, James, and John witnessing and listening and hearing and seeing. Jesus is transfigured before them. Almost as if you were to pull up in a ragged-looking car, pop the hood, and show one of the biggest engines that could ever fit in a car. And you're like, whoa, this is Jesus in his humanity, cracking back his shell, popping the hood, and showing off some of his deity. And you're kind of seeing something of his godness. And it's because he's just told them that if they're going to follow after him, they're going to die. If they're going to follow after him, if you're going to come after Jesus, you need to be willing to die, die to yourself and possibly martyrdom. So the disciples could have been discouraged at this point, realizing, should we keep following him? He's a king who said he's going to lead us to death. That sounds a little nutty. Why are we going to keep going? Right? But he needs to help them see that the only way to glory is through the cross. The only way to heaven is is through the lowest points of earth. Eternal life will be accessed through death every day. That's what he's telling them. And so he's showing them a little bit of, his, of, of who he is going to appear like and even look like in glory, I think, to encourage them, to help them realize he is worth following and not turning back. Don't stop. Don't turn back. And you know what the voice says at that time? The voice came out of a cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's so cool. If you were wondering, Peter, James, John, if you were questioning about discipleship and following after him, if you're wondering if it was really truly worth it to stake everything on what Jesus is saying and to follow him, this is my Beloved son, listen to him. God, the father, giving the stamp of approval on the son. That's in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. The other time where the voice from heaven comes is later on in Passion Week. And this is not up in northern Galilee area, but down in Judea and Jerusalem. Jesus knew that his time had, had drawn near and he was just about to be captured, wrongfully tried, by sinful men, and he was going to be made out to be a sinner, though he was not. People lied about him, mocked as a king, beaten, crucified, and he knew that his moment was coming. And Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. He's not doing this for himself. He's doing this for his father. And guess what? A response. He was actually talking to someone when he prayed. A voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. John 12, 28. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd thought it was thunder. Other people thought it was an angel's voice. Thunderous, loud, shaking. The crowd maybe didn't all hear it, but we know that Jesus did. And those who were with him, Jesus said that this was for their benefit to hear it. So in Passion Week, in the Mount of Transfiguration, at the baptism, why is a voice 
breaking through heaven to earth. At least these three points. You know why? These were all crucial turning points in the life of Jesus. The starting of his public ministry. The turning point of the disciples realizing, okay, he is the Messiah, Israel's king. Let's follow him, but it's going to be a dead man who, yes, is going to rise, but it means that we're going to have to be dead men before we rise. And so he sets his face to Jerusalem. And then just before his suffering, his passion, his crucifixion, these are all crucial turning points in the life of Jesus. You know, it kind of makes me think, not kind of, totally, it makes me think of, I was hooked on Lion King as a kid, so if you haven't watched it, um, you might miss out. But <laughs> Rafiki, you know that guy? He's the baboon. That guy, that funny guy. Uh, yeah, so Rafiki tells Simba at one point, when Simba is out in the wilderness, I wonder where they got some of their ideas from, out in the wilderness saying, you, your dad is not dead. Simba's super down, being kind of responsible. Um, but uh, he, he says, no, he's not. Where? And Rafiki says, come, follow me. And he goes to all these little trees. And so, he's, so Simba, the lion, is running after him looking. And then he comes to water. He says, look. So Simba comes, looks in the water. He sees a reflection of his own face, right? Like, Rafiki, are you just being funny? Right? And you're like, what? what was that all about? And he goes, that's me. And he goes, no, look. And then all of a sudden, this reflection turns into his dad. And then all of a sudden, we're like talking to the clouds. So then you've got Mufasa. Whew. Right? You know, just even the sound of his, his name makes you kind of shudder, right? Mufasa in the clouds speaking to his son, saying, you know what you need to do. You know what you need to do. You need to go back. You need to go to the people. Animals, not real people. <laughs> you need to go back and out of this wilderness and be their king. You need to remember who you are. It says a lot of other psychologized, self-centered things that are not biblical, so I'm leaving those out. Um, but it says, remember who you are. Remember. Remember. And the cloud goes away. Kind of an interesting, interesting point because that was a, that was a big turning point in the life of Lion King. Then the king can rise up and, and actually go and fulfill his purpose. This is what we're seeing here is the, the king is going to go public. He's accepting what is before him. That's not just, all right, well, they're going to hand me the scepter and the throne real soon, and we're going to be just off and on our way. No, he knows suffering is coming. He knows rejection is coming, and yet he's accepting it, and he's moving forward. But just notice that when you're reading this short little passage, one of the beginning things, uh, one of the two events that happens before Jesus begins his public ministry, his baptism and the temptation, that you see the Trinity in full, full color, full force at center stage. Jesus is about to start off on his rescue mission sent from heaven. The voice from heaven is God the Father giving his approval from heaven. The man being baptized, Jesus, is God the Son who stands ready to begin his mission. And then you have the dove-like spirit who is God the Holy Spirit who descends on him to empower him. Father, Son, and Spirit all playing a part in the redemption of man. And I think that there are no more beautiful words than these. We need to reflect on this for a second. You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. Here you see a few things. You see affection, don't you? My beloved son. You see affection, the affection of the father for the son. You're my only. You're my one. You're my beloved. 
you're my son. There's a double emphasis even in the way that he says it. So you see affection, you see authority. This, this man who has now come up out of the water, had the spirit descend upon him, the voice direct approval toward him, is God's own son. You see authority. This is like Psalm 2 verse 7 when, when the father is saying in heaven that I have set my king on Zion, his holy hill. And then he says, you are my son. Makes that correlation that this king who is going to reign over nations is his son. So here you have the father's son identified. Not only do you see affection and you see authority, but you see acceptance. You see acceptance. Jesus being accepted here by the father to be the long-awaited Messiah and to play the role of the promised one. And then you see approval. You see approval here. With you, I am well pleased. He is the one that is going to the cross to pay our debt for our sin, and the Father gives approval for him to do that task. This is quite an attaboy, isn't it? This is one glad father. This is a glad dad looking down upon his son. This is a week too late to be Father's Day message, but I wish it was last week. Uh, this, this could have said some gushy things here. But, you know, one advantage of it being the week after Father's Day is I got this last week, a report card on how I'm doing as a dad. Just kidding. Um, but this was passed out for the kids to write answers. I'm sure a lot of the dads got them from their kids filling them out. All about my dad. My dad is six foot three feet tall. My dad is 34 years old. So far, mostly right. My dad can run five miles an hour. <laughs> I love that one. That one's awesome. Like, she's going for the distance there, not the pace. It's all about the distance. Um, my dad's favorite food is hamburgers. Okay, guilty. My dad likes to build Legos with me. My dad's job is being a pastor. When my dad comes home from work, he likes to tickle me. <laughs> it's true. My dad always says, don't pinch me, which is true, because she pinches me back after I tickle her. Uh, my favorite thing to do with my dad is go shopping. True, guilty pleasure, shopping with my daughter. Uh, someday I want to play soccer just like my dad. I love my dad because he loves God. You know, this made me a glad dad. <laughs> I was like, gee whiz, I'm proud of my, my little beloved daughter. You know, I don't have a son, don't need one. Um, she just made me so, so happy. You know, when I, when I look at this, this text here, I'm just like looking at this father who is beaming. He's like, look at my son. I'm so proud of him. He's so special. If you think about the relationship that the father and the son have, being fully God together forever before time, before our time started, there was perfect relationship I don't know how much tickling was going on, but there was perfect relationship. No sin between them, no separation, no selfishness, no, what's that, Dad? Y'all do it later. No, perfect submission, perfect love, perfect unity. I mean, this is like ultimate father-son. This is beautiful. And the father saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. 
It's almost like if you were to just zoom out for a second on humanity, take the beginning of time, the end of time, and look at all the people who have been born, all the people, line them up, and God were to scan everybody. Nobody stands out. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. But there's one. There's one that he set his affection on, his gaze upon. There's one that he looks at and says, this, this is the one. This is the one who can remove the curse from this earth. This is the one born of the woman who can step on the snake's head. This is the one who can bring salvation. This is the one who is fit. Him. No other. There's nobody who's perfect. Just one. The son. And he is so glad. And this is a perfect time for the glad dad to say something about his son before the son starts his public ministry. When you, when you think about this for a second, personally, some personal implications here. None are righteous, not one. The unique relationship the father has with the son, and you look at it and you go, wow. John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given him, sorry, has given all things into his hand. Nothing held back. He shares with him names. He shares with him the, the place in heaven at the throne. He shares with him all kinds of things. His inheritance shared with him. Honor, glory, praise. People worship him. It's fitting. The father shares these things with him because he loves him. And you think, wow, what does that make me? Is anybody thinking that for a second? Okay, I get that there's a unique relationship between father and son. So I'm one of those other ones the outsiders, with the rest of humanity. Yes, but there's good news. There's good news this morning. Oh, I love this. I love this so much. How could you ever have this said about you? You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Could God ever say that about us? Alone. No. But could God say this about you if you are in Christ? Yes. If you have faith in Christ, you know what happens? It's no longer I who live because I've died. It's Christ who lives in me. You're in Christ. Those two words are the most beautiful words in like the New Testament. You read those in Christ. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about your incorporation into Christ. All the things that... that Jesus deserves and receives from the Father, he now extends to those of faith. It says it right in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. He has blessed us in the beloved, and that beloved is the one who shed his blood for us. So I want to give you good news this morning. If you feel kind of like left out on salvation's blessings, if you feel kind of like, man, what kind of life am I living? It just feels like the dumps, and I, I just, I don't, I'm afraid and I'm fearful that God would ever accept me. I'm still wondering if God could accept me. Would God approve of who I am and how I'm living? And you live in fear? You know what? Maybe it's because you haven't fully trusted in who Jesus is and come to him. Because when you come to him by faith, everything changes and you become loved. 
And you know what? You see the word beloved used, not just of the Son, but in the New Testament, of what? Of believers. Believers also are referred to as beloved. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Several other times it's mentioned in the New Testament. Not just being used of the one and only Son of God, but of those who are also found in Him. So heaven has torn open from top to bottom, and every spiritual blessing has been poured out to those who are in Christ. If that's you this morning, you have the best news. You have every reason to have joy. You have every reason to be comforted. You have every reason to feel accepted and approved. And if you're someone like me, who sometimes when you're not thinking about your identity in Christ, you want people to accept you and you work for that. You want people's approval and you try for that. You're like, only if dad could see what I'm doing for him. If only my boss can realize how hard I'm working for him. If only she or he would recognize this and, and see me as, as a fit dad for this home or, or whatever it is that we're wanting. You know what? Those worries of acceptance by this world and, and approval of others, they go so far away. When you realize that before your creator, you can't be any more accepted than you are right now in Christ. You're like, holy smokes, what just happened? This is awesome approved by God who sees everything about me just because of who Christ is. You need to know this about your Savior. You need to know this about him. And if you're someone who is going to try to live outside of Christ, it's a tough road. It only gets harder. And it doesn't end well. So stop living for the approval of man. It will only discourage you disappoint you. Stop craving the acceptance of this world. It will not do for you what you think it will. And stop seeking the affection from others around you in a way that just exalts yourself. You need only one's affection to know you're loved by God with an eternal, forever, sacrificing kind of love that is not out in the future, delayed in its coming, but that is here now for you in Christ. This is a beautiful passage. It's one that should be read theologically. It's one that should be understood Christologically. It's one that should just be rattling around in your mind, just going, wow, the Father's love for the Son, and I'm in the Son, and I too become a son by adoption. Thank you, Lord. I hope this is refreshing to you, and that you can look to him, receiving him. Every highway brought low, every low brought high, that he can come directly in to your life as king. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. We give you all praise and thanks. We give you the glory for the grace that you've shown to us, like Paul says in Ephesians 1, to the praise of your glorious grace, to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, it's glorious because it's something that this world could never offer us. This world puts a lot of things forward for pleasure, happiness, long life, and health, and all of these things, and they present them forward. Nothing compares to being able to have a relationship with you that is unhindered because sin has been atoned for. Sin has been taken upon Christ and, and been punished and paid for. So we don't have to work for your approval. 
any longer. We can come directly to you by faith through the Son. And by faith, access things in heaven that one day we will access by sight. Lord, we thank you for what you've taught us this morning about your Son, about your Spirit, about who you are. May we live with great refreshment for our soul, knowing whose we are. In, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.